0: You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the witness of your church, and Lord, that your promise the gates of hell will never prevail against it. And Lord, we do put our trust in you and not in horses and chariots. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so uh, the last time that I was with you, uh, Zach had it last week uh, while I was uh, fighting kangaroos. And uh, But this, uh, when we gathered last time, we talked about the reign of Elizabeth pretty much up to uh, Charles uh, I, but really didn't get there um, totally. Uh, so... Uh, we are going to talk about the reign of Charles I and then the Commonwealth and uh, all the way up to the Great Ejection. And if there's time, we'll get to the Glorious Revolution. And again, the reason why we're doing this is because uh, this period of church history uh, gets short shrift. We never talk about it. Uh, even here at the Advent, we kind of end with Cranmer putting his hand in the flames and, uh, and that's kind of it. Uh, and then we pick back up when we get to... Uh, the Wesleyan revivals and and Charles Simeon and people like that. Uh, So this is uh, the period that we don't talk about very much but was very formative uh, for us, whether we know it or not. Okay. The government of Great Britain fell in 1640, and all of you are aware of that. There was a rebellion in Scotland, as is wont to happen, and Charles I wanted money to put the rebellion down. Uh, Because Parliament was made up largely of Puritans, there was great sympathy for the Scots, especially theologically. So they rejected the king's proposal and said, if you hadn't been such a stupid king for the past ten years, none of this would have ever happened. And that was true. Uh, And because at this point, what they had been struggling with, with Charles I, uh, and I have to call him that because we're going to get to Charles II after... uh, their struggle with Charles I uh, was that Charles was trying to grab power that no uh, monarch in England uh, had ever known. So actually, when an, your ordinary, everyday person had very little interaction with the state. Now, that sounds crazy for us here. Uh, for anyone who's had to stand in line at the, at the courthouse uh, to get your tags renewed, uh, you would, uh, you would under, doesn't that make you just want to rebel? It's the worst feeling in the entire world. And uh, But people didn't really have to deal with that because the only thing the state really did is it dealt with weights and measures and issues of property and also <laughs> warfare. So there was some taxation involved. But the church, people were most more likely to have daily interaction or at least more frequent interaction with the church in the 17th century because the church was the registrar. So you had to deal with the church when you had a child born. You had to deal with the church if you wanted to name a child. And actually, even to this day, uh, the Church of England uh, has priority uh, when it comes to naming a child. Uh, There was a famous case uh, where uh, somebody had had the child and they had a birth certificate, uh, but the the minister at the local parish didn't like the child's name and so baptized him under a different name, and that trumped the birth certificate. Now, his parents were very happy and became regular toddlers uh, in that congregation uh, about that. Uh, so, there was, uh, so, the church had a lot of power, of course, uh, with deaths uh, and the like, and so the church actually had more to do with the ordinary, everyday person. And because of this, uh, the Puritans uh, really believed in the system of government that existed in England at the time, and they wanted to curb the power of the monarch. And so what Charles I ended up doing earlier in 1629, and he tried to do it again in 1640, but it worked in 1629, is he, uh, he dissolved parliament. Uh, and a, the monarch can still do this. Uh, just sent everybody home and said, uh, parliament's closed, we'll sort it out uh, later, and that it was an extreme thing to do. Uh, but at the same time, remember uh, the country could actually function well enough without a sitting legislature. Uh, wouldn't that be great uh, if it were still the case? So Charles was unpopular because he was trying to make the monarchy into something that it was not. In addition, Charles placed his loyalties in very unEnglish places. Uh, he, intemp- he attempted to marry a Spanish princess but that failed, and so he married a French princess, Henrietta Maria, both, of course, Roman Catholics. He also appointed Catholic high churchmen to positions of power, most notably William Laud. Laud is arguably the worst Archbishop of Canterbury in history. Laud was intractable in his opinions and steamrolled anyone and anything in his path. If you weren't executed, He actually, one of his favorite things to do was to cut your ears off. It won't surprise you that Laud had very few friends, but he was very close to Charles I, who trusted him as one of his closest advisors. However, not the friend you want to have in 1640. Parliament accused Laud of treason and imprisoned him in 1641. What Laud was accused of doing, and he was doing this, is because the church was so powerful and really ran parallel to the state, Laud tried to consolidate and control England under the authority of the church while Charles was trying to do it under the authority of the state. Laud was eventually beheaded in 1645 uh, and at the end of his own life, Charles I admitted that he trusted Laud too much and allowed, quote, his peevish humors and high church ritualism to inflame the nation. Uh, He actually warned his son, Charles II, from trusting people like Laud. Now, uh, there were other significant problems with Laud. What Laud had done is he had tried to upset the Elizabethan compromise that was established under her when it came to the issue of the Church of England. Uh, Remember, Elizabeth tried to kind of hedge her bets where the the theology was very Protestant, uh, but the way that the church ran was still mostly Roman Catholic in the sense of having, bless you, uh, bishops and... Uh, and the like. But what Laud wanted to do was to return the theology of the English church to more of a Roman Catholic theology. He didn't want to be under the authority of the Pope, but he just wanted to be Roman Catholic and be able to do his own thing without worrying about uh, the Pope. Now, of course, the people saw this for what it was. And as you remember, there was a great distrust Uh, toward Roman Catholics at this time in England, Uh, and we have to think about it uh, apart from being 21st century Americans, uh, because this sounds really terrible that England would not tolerate Roman Catholics practicing their faith. Uh, First thing I would say as an aside is we need to be very careful about being 21st century people and going back in time and judging people according to our standards. Uh, Because what's going to happen in 200 years when they look at us, we're all toast, right? Uh, 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 Who amongst us will be able to stand under the withering judgment of hindsight? That's the first thing. Uh, The second thing is that you might remember, uh, not only was Elizabeth excommunicated, but the Pope said it was the duty of every Roman Catholic to try to assassinate Elizabeth. So needless to say, Roman Catholics were not going to be tolerated in England, and uh, so they weren't, and so they didn't tolerate Laud either because they saw the theology as a threat to the establishment. This stood at odds with what most Anglicans thought and believed at the time. Now, here's the funny thing, though, is it turns out that Laud had an incredible impact later down the road on what became Anglicanism. So Anglicanism in America, even though this is, you know, 100, almost 150 years until the United States came into being... Uh, Laud's theology, uh, that was taken on by some other people down the road, actually had a significant impact on American Anglicanism. Uh, and I would say that Laud actually shares some responsibility for what we're dealing with today. That, and most Anglicans at the time, were thoroughgoing, uh, Bible believing Protestants. Uh, during the time of the Reformation and afterwards under Elizabeth, there was widespread conversion not just to Christianity, but to Protestantism and an understanding of the Bible as the very Word of God. Parliament at the time of Charles I had more middle-class professionals serving than any other previous parliament. It was not the domain of the elite ruling class, but actually was made up more of people that could readily identify with a normal Englishman in that day and age, which is why When Charles I dissolved Parliament earlier on in 1629, there was an exodus of Puritans who saw the writing on the wall, and where did they all go? Here. (laughs) They all came here to the United States. But we keep talking about Puritans, so let's stop and look at at who these Puritans are. It's a funny word that we tend to use as a pejorative. You know, we say that somebody's being a Puritan when... I mean, mostly people who. What's that? Party poopers. Yeah, party poopers. They're fun sponges. They walk into the room and they soak up all the fun. Uh, they they tend to be uh, very stern. Uh, well, we and, and really that's a caricature that we have, and that's how it's developed because the propaganda machine won. But uh, Kelly Capick, who's actually been here to the Advent, uh, was here last summer uh, doing an academic colloquium that we uh, hosted. And Randall Gleason have recently attempted uh, definitions of Puritan and Puritanism uh, in their introduction to the devoted life, which is a collection of chapters uh, surveying the life and writings of some significant Puritans. But how they defined it was that Puritan was a genuine movement that wielded considerable force within 17th century England and New England. They go on to say that Puritan should not be limited to strictly radical Protestant nonconformists, but rather to a much broader movement of individuals distinguished by a cluster of characteristics that transcends their political, ecclesiastical, and religious differences. These characteristics, they have seven of them. One, Puritanism was a movement of spirituality. Two, it lays stress on experiencing communion with God. Three, Puritans were united in their dependence upon the Bible as their supreme source of spiritual sustenance, and guide for the reformation of life. Four, they were predominantly Augustinian in their emphasis upon human sinfulness and divine grace. Five, they placed great emphasis on the work of the Holy Spirit in the believer's life. Six, they were deeply troubled by sacramental forms of Catholic spirituality fostered within the Anglican church. They're talking about Laud. And seven, Puritanism was also in part a revival movement. Packer Defines Puritans as this in this way: J. I. Packer, Englishmen who embraced a wholeheartedly, embraced wholeheartedly a version of Christianity that paraded a particular blend of biblicist, pietist, churchly, and worldly concerns. Puritanism, Packer contends, was essentially a movement for church reform, pastoral renewal, and evangelism and spiritual revival. Well, when you begin to define Puritanism in that way, many of you may actually say, well, shoot, I'm a Puritan. (laughs) And in a word, Puritans were the evangelicals of their day, inheritors of the Reformation, who sought to further reform the Church of England in a godly direction. Uh, One of the questions that I often ask, and I'll ask people in the Church of England who know what they're talking about, uh, what would have happened had Cranmer lived, had Mary had not burned, uh, Thomas Cranmer, because it was already clear that he was on a certain trajectory to reform the Church of England further. Well, of course, he died, and, uh, and then Mary uh, uh, sent many, or they ran into exile, uh, and Elizabeth being the political, uh, uh, maybe the greatest monarch that England ever had, uh, was really able uh, to hold it all Uh, together, and then you get the Stuart Kings, which were almost all pseudo-Roman Catholics, if not outright Roman Catholics, Uh, the Puritans were saying, no, uh, this is the trajectory that we're on, and not only do we want to reform it further, we at least want to hold on to what we have, and you're trying to take that away from us. Uh, But lest we think that all Puritans were Presbyterians, because often those two terms historically are used synonymously for this time period, they were not. In fact, you don't see the divide in Puritanism between Presbyterians that come out as a real force until 1662, which we'll get to a little bit later on. Well, after Charles I had been executed, which was actually not a popular idea amongst most of the Puritans, they didn't want to execute the king. God bless you. Uh, There had to be some reforming of the church, and even before he was executed, some reforming of the Church of England, because it was the last bastion of loyalty to the Stuart dynasty. Remember, James, King of Scotland, Mary, Queen of Scots' son, came down and was King of England, and uh, they uh, had always dabbled in Roman Catholicism. And with William Laud at the head of the Church of England, uh, the power structure was pretty much against uh, the Puritan uh, parliament as well as uh, the sort of uh, everyday-going Anglican uh, at that time. And so uh, what they ended up doing is parliament uh, during the Commonwealth abolished the episcopacy, which meant that there were no more bishops in England. And they set about formulating a new confession. And this document written by Anglicans, was called the Westminster Assembly, and they wrote what is now called the Westminster Confession of Faith, which everybody now thinks is what? A Presbyterian document, but was written by who? Anglicans. Right? This document uh, became the basis and still remains so for Presbyterians around the world, But how could this be if all of these men who were in the Westminster Assembly had been loyal members of the Church of England? Now, when you have this situation, inevitably, the best organized group is going to come out on top. You had a replay of England, what had happened in places in continental Europe, especially Holland, that was that the Presbyterian groups, what were called the Calvinists in Holland and Presbyterians in England, came out on top in the Westminster Assembly. Partly, and when I say Presbyterian, I mean form of government. So rather than having bishops, they wanted local groups. They wanted every church to be autonomous and independent and have its own say over its own affairs. Now, partly, the group came on top because of the Scottish element was totally Presbyterian. There was nobody from Scotland who was not a Presbyterian. It's sort of that way still. And very determined to push Presbyterianism as opposed to any other form of church government. And there was also a Scottish army, which was halfway down England, invading at the time. There's nothing like an invasion to concentrate the mind. The Presbyterians came to dominate the Westminster Assembly for those reasons. Now, that might have been the end of the story, but there was a complication, and that is that the Parliament, which had, been appointed, the, which had appointed the Assembly in the first place, even though dominated by Puritans, was not as pro-Presbyterian as the Assembly turned out to be. Because the parliament was, first of all, an English parliament, not a British one, not a Scottish one. There was no representation from Scotland in it. So that element wasn't present, but there were also lay people in parliament, not clergymen. So therefore, their interest was maximum freedom for the ordinary person. They didn't want to be ruled by a clerical clique. They saw Presbyterians as a kind of mafia who were going to... That's Gerald Bray's word, uh, Who were going to control everything by their associations of ministers. Now, enter Oliver Cromwell, who anytime you mention that name, people want to boo and hiss. But what we find is that actually as the Civil War dragged on, the only one who could win the war and actually unite England was Oliver Cromwell. He could actually bridge the gap between Parliament and the Westminster Assembly. And so he became more and more important. But Cromwell actually may have been the first modern man to walk the face of the earth. He's what we would call today an independent. That's to say that he thought each congregation should be allowed to run its own affairs. But also Cromwell thought one of the reasons he felt this is that this would allow different types of people to have the kind of church that they wanted. So actually, Cromwell was an incredibly liberal person. He was not at all the tyrant that we come, that we believe him to be. And for the 17th century, this is remarkable. Uh, because in the 17th century, everybody was so ham-fisted. But Cromwell really did believe in religious freedom. He thought that the Presbyterians should have the church that they wanted, and the Baptists should have the church that they wanted, and the Quakers should have the church that they wanted. He wasn't against any of them. The only restrictions that he placed were on people who didn't accept toleration of others, which happened to be only one group, the Roman Catholics. So they wouldn't be able to exist in England officially uh, because they uh, would uh, be out to do in the rest. So that wasn't tolerable. But everybody else, as long as they were people who agreed to live and let live, was, he was prepared to accept. And because he ran the army, the Westminster Assembly found it rather difficult to go against him. It could fulminate what it wanted to. In fact, it managed to make Presbyterian the state, Presbyterianism the state religion on paper, but it really didn't, couldn't apply the Presbyterian principles that it wanted to. Now, this is where things get really confusing, as if we're not there already. The Presbyterians were actually against executing the king. They were against executing the king. Cromwell didn't want to execute the king either, but Charles was becoming increasingly belligerent and was temper tantruming tantruming his way onto the chopping block. He was refusing to sign laws that passed through Parliament and was generally a loose cannon. Now, right now, Elizabeth II, when Parliament presents a law to her, she can decide not to sign it, but can she really decide not to sign it? No, she has to sign it. Now, Charles I had that prerogative, but it was almost never exercised, and he really didn't have the political clout uh, to stand against it. So he was being a real stick in the mud uh, and was being very antagonistic to what the people wanted. Uh, So Cromwell uh, reluctantly allowed Parliament to try King Charles. Now, it was a kangaroo court because although he was a terrible ruler... Charles I was a pretty good guy. Though wrong in his theology, he was devout, he had a happy marriage, and he had a lovely family. But the deck was stacked against him. So believe it or not, the Scottish Presbyterians, who were in revolt and were on their way down through England, actually wanted a king. When Charles I was executed, those same Scottish rebels crowned Charles II, his son, at age 20... The King of Scotland. Now, of course, Scotland was Presbyterian, so Charles II was going to have to go along with that, and he did. In turn, Cromwell was forced to invade Scotland because he couldn't have that all going on up north. So in 16, so all that fast forward. You have a period of the Commonwealth where everything is held together. and around about 1658, Oliver Cromwell dies. And uh, his son, Richard, tried to hold it together. Cromwell was called the Lord Protector of the Commonwealth of England, and this actually it was bigger than that. It was then Ireland, Scotland, uh, in England. Uh, and his son, Richard, assumed the position of Lord Protector, but he just couldn't hold it together, so he abdicated. And in 1660, uh, the Restoration took place, and Charles II landed on the shores of England. Uh, he had been over in France after he lost Scotland, His coronation followed in 1661 and Puritans had lost any and all of their footing. Uh, The members of the long parliament uh, called that because they sat for a long time, uh, were recalled and Puritanism essentially died in England or at least had no power base. And this was driven home by the Savoy Conference, uh, which was the conference that really uh, put together the 1662 uh, book uh, of common prayer. And so that book... Uh, based largely on the 1559 Book of Common Prayer, which is largely based on the 152, 1552 Book of Common Prayer, uh, was brought together. Now, when Charles II first landed, uh, he actually really appreciated uh, the, um, the Presbyterians because they had crowned him king in Scotland, uh, and he was ready to, uh, to do business with them. Uh, but Parliament was dissolved, and rightfully so. They needed to be resolved, uh, dissolved and in the next election, the Puritans were thrown out and the Cavaliers were put in. And so all of a sudden, uh, the, those, uh, the two dividing camps, uh, and many of them agreed theologically on just about everything... But what they disagreed on were things like church governance. So the two groups, the Presbyterians and the Episcopalians, those who believed in a Presbyterian form of government and those who believed in an Episcopalian form of government, came together at something called the Savoy Conference to talk about this proposed book of common prayer. And it was a disaster. It was a disaster for a couple reasons, one significant reason. One, uh, the Episcopalians were actually just really nasty. Uh, They realized that they didn't have to give way to the Presbyterians anymore. And so what you had were the Presbyterians who looked at the 1662 book and they had general objections to it and they had particular objections to it. And then the Episcopalians would respond to those objections. And the Episcopalian objections are snarky to say the least. And they were really, in many instances, downright rude and insulting to the Presbyterians because they really just wanted them out and so after the, after the Savoy Conference, there was a test act and a new act of uniformity that basically said that in this period of the Commonwealth, which stretched uh, for um, uh, you know, over 20 years, um, that anybody who was not ordained Episcopally, That is, if you weren't ordained by a bishop, you would have to be reordained and you would have to use the 1662 Book of Common Prayer. Well, at this point, you've had a whole generation of people who had not grown up with the Book of Common Prayer, uh, A, and then B, uh, had clergy who were not episcopally ordained. And so you had a lot of ministers who were saying, I'm not going to submit to that. Now, this was not just some sort of small, divisive group uh, who were hard-headed Puritans. Uh, in fact, uh, over 2,500 members of the clergy of the Church of England left. Twenty Over 2,500. Uh, it was called the Great Ejection. And this was a defining moment in the Church of England for various and sundry reasons. Now, let me say this. When I read, and you can read too, uh, when I read the general objections that the Puritans slash Presbyterians had with the 1662 Book of Common Prayer, the general objections, I'll be honest with you, I believe I'm with them almost 100% of the way. Their general understanding of theology, I'm with. But then I read their particular objections, the particularities to which they object to in the 1662 book, and I don't agree with them on almost anything uh, because I think that they did try to make mountain out of molehills. So one of the things that the Presbyterians doubled down on is they really dislike the idea of godparents. And uh, on the one hand, I understood what they were seeing. Here's where I agree with the general objection. That really, the child is entering into the covenant community of the church, and it's the church's responsibility to go- come around this child and to help nurture them in the Christian faith. And we, we agree with that, don't we? That's why we ask you, will you do all in your power to support these persons in their life in Christ? And what do you say? well, you hope, I hope you do, uh, you say, we will, right? And so the Presbyterians would say, well, there, that, that, that's it. You don't need uh, particular godparents. And to their point, even back in that day, uh, we have a really shallow understanding of what godparents are. Uh, we, sort of, we sort of think, well, who didn't we pick as groomsmen and bridesmaids? And, uh, and so we'll just ask them to be uh, the godparents. Uh, we don't really take them that seriously. And so the Presbyterians said, we don't like godparents, and think that the church ought to just uh, be godparents uh, to the children. Uh, so they took that a little bit far. And you can actually buy, and read, you can read it online as well, there's a Presbyterian version of the 1662 Book of Common Prayer. Like you can see how they would have tweaked it in order to fit uh, their, uh, their needs. Well, they had a lot of other uh, objections, but again, the general objections good. The particular objections, they could be a little bit nitpicky. But when you saw 2,500 people uh, thrown out of uh, the Church of England, uh, it was a really, really big deal. There's a great little book out by Ian Murray uh, called The Sermons of the Great Ejection. And these are sermons preached, the last sermons preached by ministers who were ejected from the church. And what's amazing about them is actually how gentle and how wonderful they are and, and how much hope they still had for the Church of England. Uh, and so it's, it's a very uh, good uh, book to read. Uh, but in it, um, um, uh, this is what Murray says in his preface, and he quotes uh, modern Anglicans. Um, quote, uh, It is equally true that after the silencing of the 2500, we enter an age of rationalism, of coldness in the pulpit, and indifference in the pew an age in which skepticism and worldliness went far to reducing national religion to a mere parody of New Testament Christianity. Such assertions are not just the reflection of nonconformist viewpoint, for they have been frequently confirmed by Anglican writers. Speaking of the effects of 1662, J.B. Marsden wrote, If it be presumptuous to fix upon particular occurrences as proofs of God's displeasure... Yet none will deny that a long unbroken course of disasters indicates but too surely, whether to a nation or a church, that his favor is withdrawn. Within five years of the ejection of the 2,500 nonconformists, London was twice laid waste, first by pestilence, then by fire, but other calamities ensued, more lasting and far more terrible. Religion in the Church of England was almost extinguished, and in many of her parishes the lamp of God went out says Archdeacon Hare, um, who wrote uh, also in the mid-19th century, as Marsden did, after we had cast out so much faith and zeal and holiness, after we had in this manner almost cast out the doctrine of Christ crucified from the pale of our church, we had to travel through a century of coldness and dreariness, of barrenness, of Pelagianism, of Arianism, and latent Socianism. You can go look those up. All which were found compatible with outward conformity. In language of similar strength, the former bishop of Liverpool, J.C. Ryle, who gets quoted a lot around here, referred to the ejection as, quote, an injury to the cause of true religion in England, which will probably never be repaired, and more impolitic deed never disfigured the annals of the church. So pretty strong language about <clears throat> excuse me, the ejection of these ministers, which would become nonconformist And on the 350th anniversary of the Great Ejection, there was actually a big service at Westminster Abbey where the Church of England apologized to the nonconformists to their faces um, while they were there. Now, ironically, uh, what happened to the nonconformists, lest we think that uh, they soldiered on and they were the beautiful, brilliant light of the church, uh, what happened in the nonconformist church in England is what happened to the nonconformist church in North America in New England especially, uh, would you say that New England is the hotbed of biblical Christianity? And that's, not, that's an observation. That's not a judgment. Now, there are certainly faithful witnesses to the gospel there, uh, but, you know, the founding document of Harvard said that the end aim of Harvard University was let, to lay Christ at the bottom of all that they do. Well, Harvard's defa- departed far uh, from its founding uh, document. And so actually what we find amongst Puritans is that that tradition died out rather quickly in succeeding uh, generations. There are actually uh, reasons why that happened, and I can talk to you about the halfway covenant uh, that Jonathan Edwards dealt with uh, when he preached in America in the 18th century, uh, but that's uh, for another time. Uh, And in fact, the great revivals that happened in the Church of England, uh, because the Church of England was pretty desolate until the Wesleyan revivals, which uh, God in His mercy put some heat uh, back into uh, the Church of of England. Uh, But the Puritans, uh, they they weren't all bad, uh, is what I want to say. And uh, and I would encourage you uh, to not be too dismissive of them. Uh, Yes, they were wrong about any number of things. Uh, But at the same time, uh, up until 1662, they were faithful Anglicans. Uh, They really did uh, believe wholeheartedly uh, the doctrines of the church. And although I would disagree with them, especially over issues of church governance, uh, they certainly were brothers, and their loss to the church uh, was great. Questions, comments, concerns? I know it was very hard to do that justice in half an hour, but there you have it. Touching on Matt's sermon, where would the sovereignty of God uh, enter into this theology? Yeah, well, I mean, I think that that's just it, that doctrinal... I think that that was part of it, too, is that the Puritans... This is a whole other issue, but very quickly. uh, This is where the Puritans went wrong, too, is that they felt that their job was to keep the church as pure as it could possibly be, which really doesn't take into consideration human beings. Uh, And so... Uh, there was almost an overemphasis on the visible nature of the church, which I care about a lot too. Uh, but that they, um, yeah. So I think that it was, you know, there was this almost, even though they would, they believed in God's sovereignty. In practice, they tried to take control, and I think that that was it too. That they became doctrinal police rather than preaching the gospel. Shannon, Was that? Response also not true because, at least here in America, the uh, charter for the Bay Colony was revoked and they became under um, English common law. Yes. Yes, but I think that the the Puritanism falling apart in the United States had more to do with the Puritans. Um, I can get into the halfway covenant... Well, I won't get into it now, but go look up the halfway covenant, and and that was part of it. That and Unitarianism started to creep in. So actually, uh, the one of the oldest Anglican churches in uh, the United States is King's Chapel in Boston, Massachusetts. Really beautiful colonial church, and uh, they actually went Unitarian, and so they left the Episcopal Church in the uh, 18th century, late 18th century, and they have a Unitarian version of the Book of Common Prayer. Uh, it's really uh, interesting. Uh, and the funny thing is if you go talk to them, they say that they're the conservative Unitarians, which I think, yeah, right. Uh, so uh, it's very funny. But it's a church. It's right on the, um, it's one of the stops on, what's the trail up there that you walk on? Freedom Trail. Freedom trail. It's on the Freedom Trail. It's right next to Boston Common. So I, I would say that it was the, the influx of Unitarianism, but also the halfway covenant. Which Jonathan Edwards, it was actually his grandfather that, ironically, that spearheaded that movement, and Edwards' grandson spent the rest of his life fighting his grandfather's legacy. And Edwards was right. Jane. Hello. I mean, we kind of, through two Sundays ago and today, talked about how the church kind of got fragmented, yet there's so many calls in Scripture for unity. Yes. How do you talk to that tension? Uh, Yes, Um, I you know I'm actually talking about this uh, in uh, after after church to a group of folks uh, or hitting on this, yeah. So that is one of the things that I I will say that well, there's a propensity amongst people to divide over secondary and tertiary issues, and we all need to be very careful to not one we get blinded by it and we, we can. We really do believe that those become gospel issues. And so being able to discern this is really a secondary issue, but in the same way, we have a hard time seeing that certain things actually are dividing issues and that there are gospel implications to it, but as human beings, we get it all all mixed up. So I think that one of the things that we need to do as believers is to work really hard for the unity of the church. And I think that Cromwell was probably right in giving people the freedom that they needed to have in order to be who they were uh, because the proof of the pudding ends up being in in the eating. I think, too, that the church needs to stop thinking that they're the spiritual arm of the sheriff's department and that it's our job to correct everybody's doctrine. And, uh, and I don't think that this is... Non, Well, one, we ought to be praying for people that we disagree with and, and not just God change their hearts, but God change our hearts that will actually love them. Uh, but two, to be able to discern uh, that there might be some Romans 1 playing out, and that is that God is actually giving them what they want and that, you know, you might not want to interpose yourself between those people and the wrath of God, uh, but at the same time, you should be prepared that when they go over the cliff and break into a million pieces, as Christians, we need to be the first ones there to pick them up and help put back together the pieces. So, um, so I would say that 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 those secondary issues we need to be we need to call that out and say, you know what, this is not worth uh, dividing over because love doesn't insist on its own way. So it was a real, it was a real shame, and it was a two-way street between the both sides at the Savoy Conference. I mean, nobody was an innocent party, and it really was uh, a, a very, very sad moment uh, in the life uh, of the church. And it's happened in our own uh, denomination. I won't speak to current events, uh, but it was a real. In 1870, a significant group of people left the Episcopal Church to form what became the Reformed Episcopal Church, and, uh, and it wasn't just the number of those who left, but who left, and that was the same with the Puritans. Some really significant players left the Episcopal Church, and effectively, uh, ev- evangelicalism died in the Episcopal Church and didn't reemerge again until the 1970s. So it took 100 years, and, and that was through the influence of the Church of England, uh, that, that people went over and trained in England and came back and, and brought it brought it with them and so and I think that the issues that they left over they should not have left over, um, but you know again, here I am hindsight 21st century looking back and telling them that they did the wrong thing. so all right, go in peace to love and serve the Lord.